Hello, hello, hello. So before I go into today's amazing episode, I am over the moon to announce that the next intake of the Female Fat Loss Program is now open. So signups are now open for July. And this is something that you guys have created. You guys have DM me. You guys have been asking for this for, I think, about three years. And it took me a while to get it right. It's taken me a while to figure out what I want out of it. And the program has been running amazingly, amazingly well since we started opening it up. And what the actual program is a little bit different. So if it's a, if you're looking for a program to lose 10 kg in six weeks, it's not going to be the program for you because no program could and should be able to offer you that unless it's completely restrictive. So what this program is offering you is you where you get a program tailored to you, nutrition based off what your goals are, education on how to train around your cycle, manage your cravings, education around perimenopause, menopause, postnatal, prenatal, how to manage PMS, how to manage your thyroid, how to manage PCOS, how to, how to manage endometriosis and get away from the yo-yo dieting. So the last intake actually sold out in 24 hours, which was mad. I was keeping the numbers small and then there was so much activity coming in that I had to kind of uh, close it off uh, and I had to reopen it back up. So the next program will be starting on Monday, the 18th of July, 2022. I'll be running for six weeks from there. So what you will get from me uh, is your training program with videos, education on training. You'll get free recipe books. I would highly recommend to try the brownies, a Facebook group with supports, lives every Tuesday, check-ins every week. You'll have check-ins on the group. You can It's, an, it's a like-minded group and the current group that are in there at the minute are thriving because they're, they're seeing what each other is doing and they're encouraging everyone. It's, that's what I want it to be. So who is this program for? It's someone who wants to learn. It's someone who wants to make their body work for them. People who are sick and tired of not seeing results and ready to take action. Someone who's looking to potentially lose body fat. Someone who's looking to gain muscle. Someone who's look, looking to feel more confident in their body. Looking for guidance around cravings of PCOS, endometriosis. People who are looking for guidance around mental health. So what I would encourage you guys to do, if you're looking for something that's a little bit lower price, if you're on a budget or whatever it may be, what I would highly encourage you to do is try this out for the six weeks. It's going to be at the lowest price it is now. I may review it after a while. So if you're looking to kind of work with myself and get rid of that BS that's out there, I'd highly recommend to do it. The people who are in it at the minute are absolutely thriving and every single one of them is absolutely smashing. So if you're interested in working with myself uh, through the Female Fat Loss Program, click on the link in the bio, sign up. Things will start up on the 18th of July on Monday and you'll have everything sent over to you the Friday beforehand. And the price of the program is €149 for six weeks. So it works out less than a cup of coffee every single day. So I think it's it's quite cheap compared to what I've seen from other programs, but the amount of information, and that's the bit that I've seen so far from the feedback that's kind of come in. So if you're interested to work with me from the 18th of July, I would recommend to click on the link in the bio or and in the write-up of the episode click on that book your space and everything will be over to you the friday before really excited to see you guys who are joining up looking forward to it and i will talk to you guys very soon enjoy the episode hello so thank you so much to everyone who has listened to any episode of the shame watch podcast who has downloaded shared it whatever it may be tagged me messaged me on any episode so thank you so much for doing that so it'd be amazing if you could please continue to do that and it would mean the world to me if you could, because the more people we get in to this ecosystem, the more people that share the podcast, the more people that can learn the kind of like 
the, the better way and move away from kind of the, the restriction element and restriction mindset. And today's episode is along those lines. So today we have the amazing uh, co-author of an amazing book that I've read and I would highly recommend any coach or any nutritionist or any individual to kind of read it. And it's it's one of the co-authors of the amazing book called Intuitive Eating. And the author, the co-author is Eilish Reish. Um, and she's been helping people kind of return back to their intuitive eating. And there's different concepts, different methods about learning how to listen to your body, what it actually needs, how to actually slow down, being present. A lot of the things that we kind of bring in with that I bring in with my one-to-one clients. And I think the, the, it's a massive credit to the book that it's in, I think it's a, the fourth edition of print. So it's, it's massively it's massively growing. It's kind of like the intuitive eating thing has grown and it's amazing to see. So I'm really, really excited for you guys to, to listen to this episode. I'll put a link into the write-up for you guys to go and get the book if you want. As I said, I would encourage you to to kind of listen to it, have a listen to see how it can improve. There's a lot of information in this episode. So you'll probably need a pen and paper. And I really, really hope you enjoy the episode. Elise, how are we? Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Because I know we are kind of to and fro and for a little while to try and organize this because uh, Elise is over in uh, in America. So it's always the time difference is always the, the hurdle. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on. So for anyone who isn't aware of yourself and the, the books and the, the work that you do, can you give us a little bit of a quick, quick synopsis of what you do and who you are? Sure. So I'm Elise Resch and I am a um, registered dietitian nutritionist, but I call myself a nutrition therapist because I'm working with thoughts and feelings connected to eating much more than actual food. And uh, I'm a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. I do a lot of supervision of you know, people coming up in the field. I've been in private practice for 40 years uh, and it's my second career. I was an elementary school teacher when I got out of college and then went back to graduate school at 30. So it's been, uh, it's been quite a journey. And uh, I see patients uh, on, well, virtually right now and have been for the last couple of years for sessions. I do talks, I write, I'm the co-author of Intuitive Eating, and uh, that's kind of the focus of this talk today. It first came out in 1995. I wrote it with my colleague, Evelyn Triboli, and uh, we, are na- we are now in our fourth edition, which came out two years ago. So uh, it's, uh, it's really very important to know that in the world of publishing, a book that keeps going and keeps getting new editions means that the public is really interested in it because publishers don't public, publish books that don't sell. And I've written, uh, I wrote an intuitive eating workbook for teens, which um, explains intuitive eating in teen language, but also to the teen in each adult, because I'm very much an inner child person. I really believe we all have our, our little kids and our teenagers in us. I'm pretty old and my teenager is very active and rebellious. So I wrote, uh, I wrote that book myself and uh, it's a workbook and p- people seem to love it because of, well, the teens love it. And then the adults seem to find it a way to get back to their teen years where often their disconnection from their eating began. And intuitive eating is really about, um, oh, by the way, there are other books, but I don't have to mention them right now. Uh, intuitive eating is about reconnecting with that internal wisdom that uh, pretty much the majority of everyone is born with. I mean, there are some babies that are born with 
neurological problems who might not be able to. But for the most part, babies are born, they get hungry, they cry. If they're fed regularly and consistently, they start to trust that um, their hunger signal is accurate because it's being responded to on a regular basis. They also start to trust that there will be care for them in this world and that their needs are being met. So hunger is uh, the most important and most primary signal of need. And um, it's an important piece of their psychological growth to have a sense of trust that their signals are correct and that there's somebody there to take care of them. They also know when they're full. I mean, a baby who has done drinking milk, whether it's breast or bottle, turns its little head around. You can't get more into that baby. And then when they start playing around with solid foods, they don't really need them until they're a year old, but they start playing around with them around six months. And they start to sense the joy of eating, the joy of food, even, even the touching of it is the tactile uh, you know, experience of, of picking up food and feeling in their hands and in their mouths and the flavors. And they know what they like and they know what they don't like. The problem in our world is, is that we're disconnected from that. Um, typically, because of what I call a cult, it's in the word diet culture, uh, which really uh, pulls people away from trusting that they know best and gives them all different, many different kinds of narratives about what is best for them. And then they start distrusting themselves even further and follow all of the different uh Suggestions and typically fail at them, usually their diets, because diet culture promotes one ideal, and that's for um, people who identify as female as being the thinnest as they can be, and often people who identify as male as being the most buff, and that's the way you have to be. And if you don't meet that, then um, it you know, affects self-esteem and sends you off on trying all kinds of external methods to fix the body to look like that ideal. And it promotes good and bad foods. And the worst part of diet culture, and this is a big thrust of my work, especially at this point in my career, is social justice. I think that um, it leads to oppression of people in bodies that don't meet the, the ideal that diet culture promotes. So uh, it affects many marginalized communities and um, makes people really feel bad about themselves. Self-worth goes down. Cortisol levels go up. Cortisol being our stress hormone because they're stressed all the time about, you know, being bullied or judged. And uh, that's a, a big indicator of uh, potential for negative health outcomes, increased inflammation, increased chance of heart disease and diabetes. I'm going on and on and on. <laughs> I think your question was, who am I? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> no, yeah. but like, it, it, like, I think, like it, it, there's there's so much there and there's so much to like dissect and stuff like that. I think what we're trying to do on this episode anyways, I think <laughs> is talk about the intuitive side of things. Cause I know the diet yeah. culture thing is a rabbit hole that could be ra- opened up and I don't think we're ever going to get out of it. I'll try. I'll do my best. Uh, so okay. with intuitive eating, where do you think we get confused as humans with kind of intuitive eating? And is it a gray area or do we overcomplicate it ourselves as humans? Where does it kind of get question. complicated for it's us? It's a good question. So, so intuitive eating is this uh, self-care framework. It is um, a way of doing the best for yourself, for your body, for feeling the best, for getting the most enjoyment out of eating. And that piece of it gets um, totally derailed by the idea of, 
eating only healthy foods, quote unquote, or eating only foods that'll keep you, you know, looking a certain way. So I think that's one way of getting derailed. Here's, here's the, I want to throw this in right now. My favorite definition of intuitive eating, which is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. And I'm going to talk about derailment in relationship to that. Well, what does that mean? So our brains have three major um, pieces that we have to look at. The most primitive part is called the reptilian brain. It's some people call it the lizard brain. It's the instinctual part of the mind it's, of the brain. It's the part that uh, is there for survival. So dinosaurs basically only operated on the reptilian brain, which just sent them to go eat other little dinosaurs or whatever was in their way to keep them alive. So we, we have that part. We as humans have that part. It sits on top of our brainstem. Now, as mammals evolved, another part of the brain started getting activated, which is the mammalian or the limbic brain. And that's the seat of emotions and social behaviors. So cats, dogs, you know, mam mammals all have that part uh, active because our emotions can impact our, you know, our signals, our instinctual signals. And humans, of course, have that as well. But what differentiates us as humans is the neocortex or the um, thinking part of the brain, the cognitive part of the brain. So intuitive eating takes into consideration all of these three parts. And anywhere along the way, we can get derailed from intuitive eating in terms of your question, uh, especially by emotions and thinking. I mean, if we go by instinct, we'll be fine. Unless, of course, we're sick and it takes away our appetite to eat and hunger, you know, hunger is gone, but, um, or strong emotions like stress before some big exam that could take away or some life situation that's very difficult can take away hunger. But instinct is what we want to get back into and really look at whether it is giving us our pure um, information about eating and then looking at emotions in, and thinking and seeing how that pulls us away. So emotions, I mean, very often we need, we need something more than food. We need comfort in so many ways. And food may be the first comfort we go to, which is perfectly legitimate. Uh, but we want to see whether it's distracting us from our true hunger, our hunger signals. And and then the thinking, that's the worst part. I mean, as I was saying before, bad, good foods, you know, should look a certain way that totally just, you know, derails us from the, um, from our instinctual knowledge about eating. Did I answer if, your question? It does. Uh, if someone is struggling to differentiate between emotional hunger and mm -hmm. true hunger, uh -huh. what are the couple of questions they can actually ask themselves kind of internal dialogue that they can have with themselves or is yeah. there any kind of like toolkit that you have which there definitely is in the book by the way yeah no i love that question the first question to ask oneself is am i being well fed uh the primary most foundational part of dealing with emotions and dealing with thinking and dealing with everything is being fed. And so many people don't eat enough. They go throughout the day and don't nourish themselves, um, especially if they're active. You're a fitness person. If they're active and they're not eating enough, uh, that can, uh, you know, be the piece that's keeping them from getting proper hunger and fullness signals. So the first, you know, that's the first question. Am I eating enough? The second question is, um, am I continuing to have negative or judgmental thoughts about food? Am I classifying my food as good food, bad food? Am I classifying myself as good or bad based on what I choose to eat? 
And that can lead to a lot of negative emotion and a drive to comfort, you know, have extra comfort from, from eating or even beyond comfort. It can go to numbing. It can go to, well, distraction, numbing, and unfortunately, sometimes self-punishment by eating in an emotional way as a way to get ourselves away from the true feelings. Where does that come from? Like, where do we kind of like, is it kind of, like you're talking about the beginning of the episode of kind of like as kids that were kind of more aware or, or babies, should we say, as toddlers yes, and stuff, right. you're able to say, no, I'm okay, or you mm-hmm. put the bottle away. Okay. At what kind of age bracket does it kind of, obviously depends if there's traumatic events in some kid's life and all that kind of stuff. There's obviously massive difference, differences. Well, Can you, is there a pinpoint I mean, that you kind of say is like, as a teenager, kind of waves, wavers. Oh, I think it can adult. start way, bef- way, way before that. I think it can start as a toddler if one's um, needs are not being met. You know, imagine a toddler uh, trying to get p- a parent's attention as they're walking down the street while the parent's talking to a friend and they're pulling on the parent's leg and parent isn't paying attention. They start to have a tantrum and. Um, and then perhaps, you know, the parent will go buy them an ice cream to calm down that, you know, what's going on when really what they needed was attention. So it can start very early on. I think that at puberty, well, bef- even before, you know, teen years, as bodies start to change and they change for everyone, regardless of gender, bodies do start to change. And uh, this is not always the case, but sometimes the doctor, the pediatrician will make a comment about, oh, you just gained so much weight. You know, or say to the parents, you better start yeah. watching, you know, watching what they're eating because, wow, you know, they gained so much since the last uh, visit. And ironically, little kids have to gain weight in order to make the hormones for puberty. And so it's natural at that age for uh, the, as the body's changing to gain weight and have the body look a lot different. And that might be just a trigger right there to going down a path of trying to, you know, revert back to what the body looked like before that, which you're not going to do because you have to, we'll have to go through puberty and, you know, maturation and all of that. And then teen years, of course, it's so emotional and teens, my goodness, you know, they're just stay close, go away, stay close, go away. They just want to be their own person. I mean, that's, it starts in toddlerhood and then it repeats again in developmentally in teen years, this concept of assertion of autonomy. This is a very healthy developmental stage that people have to go through in order to become healthy adults, emotionally healthy adults have healthy, strong egos, is to be able to be their own person. The toddler notices, ooh, not attached to mommy by the umbilical cord anymore. I can walk out of the room. I'm not saying they're cognitively doing this. It's more psychic. They walk out of the room and come back and they're, you know, they don't have to be held all the time. They want to go play with their own toys and not be given the clothes to wear. They want to do it on their own. Me, me, you know, and their favorite word is no. Time to go to bed, honey. No, one more book, you know. (laughs) And so teens, have this re-emergence of this need to be their own person, individuation, separation, autonomy. And yet at the same time, they're terrified and they want to be attached to, I say it's with quotes, mommy, it could be any caregiver, you know? Um, And so that's a, a tough time. And that's a time when disconnected eating can happen because uh, they're scared of growing up. They're angry at being held down to certain rules and restrictions and food is the most available thing for them. 
thank God it's the food if it if it's not drugs and alcohol and you know uh, behaviors that are dangerous. I mean, thank good, thank God. And I say this to my clients that the food is there for them sometimes when it's their only coping mechanism. Sometimes they're they're both of their parents are working if they have two parents and they're working and they're home in the afternoon coming home from school, latchkey kids with a key, you know, to get in the door. I mean, sometimes parents both have to work to support the family and they have, they're alone and they're lonely and they start going to food as a way to cope. Is that a learned thing about kind of using as a food to cope or is it kind of like, because it's there in the first world that it's always there? Well, it's always there. You know, the, the 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 cigarettes, the alcohol, the drugs, we hope aren't there in the, you know, in the home. Yeah, nice. And so, it, and we, we are given food as reward. You know, you go to the doctor and you get a lollipop You or to the, not the dentist, probably, but to the doctor. And, you know, as I said earlier, the little toddler who's tamp- tantruming, well, maybe the parent goes and takes them to get ice cream because to calm them down, we are given food as a way to calm us. Now think about this, Shane. The moment an infant is born, or maybe not the moment, but soon after when they're first fed, they're either getting some form of milk or some sugar water. They're getting, they're getting that taste of sweetness from the first taste of anything in their lives, and that calms them. And it does calm them because it you know, leads to more production of serotonin in the brain. So we learned from birth that food is calming, especially my beloved carbs and sugar. So. <laughs> and I, I've never thought of about it like that with kind of like when you're when you're born the the milk and the the sugar that's yeah it, I've never thought of it like that that you kind of get that dopamine and, and think about this yeah it's a dopamine right and serotonin production of the brain both happen and think about this if it's a home one hopes that there is you know connection and caregiving healthy caregiving that child's being held when they're fed. So here's this child, whether it's a bottle or, or the breast, it doesn't matter. That child is being held, looked at in its eyes and feels the comfort, the physical comfort of the body and feels the food coming in at the same time. So there's that, that emotional connection begins, you know, immediately after birth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that something so early on sticks with us for forever, as long as we can remember, if you know what I mean. Well, well think about this. Yeah, as a that survival part of the brain, thank goodness we have that because it drives us to, you know, it's one of the driving forces for us to go eat, to get food, that it takes care of the pain of hunger, because sometimes, especially for a little one, it feels painful to be hungry, and it gives us the comfort. So, yeah, aren't we lucky that we're driven to food? In a way, yes. <laughs> Some people be like, no. <laughs> Um, well i think yeah okay some people be like no some people be like Uh, yeah i I, like food's amazing and it's an amazing celebration and stuff like that but then there's other people who are kind of like struggle with it um through various different reasons and others and so that which is a very different podcast episode you spoke about like babies being aware of fullness and stuff like that like i don't think many of us know actually what fullness is like it like there is a scale of like zero to ten or one to ten i can't remember which one it is um can you give us a few ideas of how to find that out and maybe talk about the, the, that yes. scale and yes. stuff like that because it can be confusing and i don't think many people are aware of what that scale is well i think that's the first point is that we have number one have to stay present when we're eating so so many people are eating while they're on the phone talking to someone or scrolling through their feeds or 
you know, just doing something that takes them away from staying present. And I'm not a proponent of you can never do anything while you're eating. I mean, I'm happy to watch a good TV show and, and eat something or to read the newspaper. Well, the newspaper is not so good to read right now, but, you know, it's, it's while I'm eating. So I don't think that we have to just sit there staring into space, but it's about um, having an intention of staying present so that we can notice what our hunger is like when we begin to eat so that we can notice how that changes in our body as we start nourishing ourselves. It's always helpful to take a time out as we're eating. It's like last night I was out to dinner with a friend and ordered this wonderful pasta. And it's, you know, I, at some point I just needed to stop and think, Oh yeah, I probably had enough had a couple more bites and then asked it to be packed to go home. So it's about staying present. If I were just continuing on in my conversation with my friend with no awareness of that, delicious pasta in front of me, I could have gone through the entire portion and maybe gone home and been too full and not slept well last night. So it's about, that's the first piece is staying present. The second piece is uh, making sure you're not going into a meal in what's called primal hunger. If you start eating when your blood sugar is so low and your uh, brain is in a panic mode, the instinctual part, it's like, get it in as fast as you can. There, there's a chemical the brain releases called neuropeptide Y, which literally sends you out to get as much food and especially carbohydrates as you can for survival. The brain can only work on carbohydrates. That's another whole episode <laughs> scientifically. But so we're driven to get too much food in too fast if we're too hungry when we start. So staying present, making sure that you aren't going into that meal in primal hunger, meaning you probably want to be eating about every three to four hours so that your blood sugar doesn't crash before you're eating. Taking a time out, as I did last night, you know, just for a moment, just, you know, to check in. Oh, guess I am full. Mm, tastes so good. I'll have a couple more bites and okay, time to take the rest of it home. Or I'm not full and I need more, you know, I'm not satisfied. That's the big piece too. Am I fully satisfied? That's tongue and body. And maybe you're, you're starting to get, you know, you've lost the hunger signal. It's over now because you've eaten a little bit, but you're not really satisfied. Your tongue and your body isn't fully satisfied. So you need to eat more. The other piece, and this is an article I wrote, and if any of your readers ever want a copy of it, I'm happy to send it to you and you can send it out to them. I call it the sadness of saying enough. And here's the emotional piece. Sometimes we get to that point of fullness where we know we're comfortably full. We know that our bodies are fed, that our mouths are fed, but it's really hard to stop because that food tastes so good. And so taking that moment to acknowledge that feeling, and I call it feeling light versus feeling heavy, uh, feeling light, meaning it's a moment, you're sad, it's a wonderful experience, and it's time to stop. But guess what, you know, go do something else and you get to eat again in three hours. So it's not like heavy life emotion. It's a momentary feeling of sadness and coming to terms with, yeah, I could keep eating. And I physically, I want to feel good. Also, I don't want to feel too full and uncomfortable, especially if it's dinner and you don't want to go to sleep on a very, you know, full stomach that that can cause reflux and just, you know, interfere with your sleeping. And so it's also being able to tell yourself at that moment, I can eat whatever I want. This is a big piece of intuitive eating, full permission to eat what you want, full peace with food whenever I get hungry again. And, um, and it's a self-soothing way of talking and letting yourself know this is not your last meal. You're not headed, headed to the guillotine. You know, you're you're going to get to eat again in a few hours and getting yourself through that moment. And, you know, maybe just getting up and clearing the table or something and 
might help. You mentioned there the sentence there, you can eat whatever you want. I know someone uh-huh. listened to this. I can hear someone coming straight away and saying, well, what happens uh-huh. this? The fear comes in. It's like, well, what happens if I have this? I'll lose control. How do you talk? How do you talk away that kind of like monkey brain? You, you ask so many good questions. This is one of my favorite questions to be answered. Um, so if you truly have full permission, meaning you are going to allow yourself to have what it is that you want to eat when you're hungry, because that's the best way you're going to get the most satisfaction is if you're hungry. If you're not hungry, food doesn't taste so good. Um, And you take away the forbiddenness. You take away the judgment about the food. You make sure, and, and I have to put in a caveat, if people are in poverty and they don't have access to food and they just have to get whatever they can get. It's a whole other scenario. We're talking about people who are privileged yeah. enough to be able to have access to food and to yeah. a variety of food. So putting that in, um, if you do have that privilege and you can make sure that there's plenty of that food in the cupboard or in the refrigerator, or you have a, you make sure that you shop regularly, you don't leave yourself in a food desert in your own home because there's, you know, there's no food there. Um, then what ends up happening is this phenomenon that I just love and appreciate called habituation. And it's a psychological concept that says the more you have of something, the less exciting it is. So um, having that same food every day after a while, it's like, eh, you know, it's not, it's not as good. It's just, you know, and so the design, the drive to have, too much of it, quote unquote, to the point of feeling uncomfortable, um, is often coming from the place of feeling like you will be restricted of it in the future, or you you maybe you'll have access to it, but you're not giving yourself psychological freedom to have it. And so I better get it in all now because I don't know whether I'll really trust myself and let myself have it later. But if you have this full permission and you have full access, then you notice as the taste is diminishing. Each day that you have it, I'll often say to some, to a client, what's your favorite food? Oh, hot fudge sundae. Okay, have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And they'll look at me and I'll go, yeah, go ahead. How long do you think it'll be before you're craving a salad or you're craving a piece of chicken or you're, you know. So um, this, this is the antidote to the fear of I'll never stop eating if I give myself permission. Yeah. But you can't have pseudo permission. And pseudo permission is, yeah, I'll give this a try. I'll see what this is like letting myself eat whatever I want. But if this uh, intuitive eating thing doesn't work well, there's, you know, I don't even want to mention the, the dozens of diets out there that they can go on. Then, then you see, it's the future, it's the fear, the mere perception of future deprivation that can cause somebody to keep eating and eating out of the fear of not having it in the future. It's very psychological. My my whole premise in this book and in my work is psychological because it's it's all geared there scientifically in terms of physiology as well. But psychological uh, is what drives us often. The sentence I always use with my clients is, you're a much nicer person with chocolate in your life and carbs in your life. Can you please continue to eat them? <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I'm with you 100%. You know, th- one of the things that, boggles my mind is this carb phobia that exists in this world. It was so interesting. (laughs) At the end of the meal, I ordered this. They have this wonderful like apple kind of thing that I didn't even realize doesn't have flour in it. It 
And I said to the, as I was walking out, I said, I love your new apple dessert. And he said, yeah, it's for people who won't have flour. I said, what? <laughs> and in, this is an Italian restaurant and, you know, Italian people embrace flour and you know, bread and pasta and, and pizza. And I'm, I'm just astounded by people who think that um, the carbohydrates are dangerous, bad carbohydrates, including sugar and flour and, um, you know, every other food that, that contains carbohydrates. I started to say in the beginning that our brains function on carbohydrates. The only source of energy that can cross from the bloodstream into the brain is sugar, glucose, the smallest molecule. I have a master of science degree in nutrition, so I throw some of that in, but it's the smallest uh, uh, measure of carbohydrate is what the brain uses. And all of these people who are eliminating carbs, trying to live without carbs, it's like, well, how? what's happening? So they're breaking down their glycogen stores, which is their stored form of carbohydrate, because we do store some carbohydrates, like our human starch kind of thing that we have in our liver and our, and our muscles. We use that up. And then if we continue to go on, guess what? All that extra protein that people are having, and you're the fitness person. So I know protein's an important piece. Well, it's an important piece for all of us, but they're taking in all this protein. It's getting converted into carbohydrates, getting burned as energy. And then if we go too far and really aren't eating enough food, we start burning our own muscle tissue and converting the amino acids that make up our the protein of our muscles into glucose. Gluconeogenesis is the term. Gluco, sugar, neo, new, genesis, make, make new sugar. So it's absurd that people don't eat carbs. I hope that somebody listening to this will change their mind about carbs. There's a mic drop moment there. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> I, they said this, the episodes with, uh, with the guests and stuff like that normally come out on a uh, on a Monday. And generally what happens on a Monday is someone's going to say to themselves on a Sunday is the diet starts on Monday. And okay. one of the things that kind of comes up an awful lot is I have to get all these tasty foods out of the house so I can be in inverted commas good for the rest of the week. Now, right. that's not what I believe in. But there's a term for this. Can you explain what the term yes. is and how can we work around this mentality? That is so we're there. talking about last supper eating? Yeah, last supper <laughs> mentality. Yes, yeah, so a last supper mentality. Yeah, it's that what I was talking about before about deprivation and habituation, the opposite. I mean, if you don't think you're going to have something because you're telling yourself you've got to be good, you've got to go on the diet, again, all in quotes, uh, then you better eat it all right now, because this is your only opportunity to have it. But if you know it's going to be there on Monday and every other day, then you don't have that drive to have to have it now, you know, because it's going to be gone. So last supper eating. Is that when, when people get that fear of say, we'll, we'll stick on carbohydrates because it's the one that so the carbohydrates or chocolate are the two that normally comes up for me with clients. Um, <laughs> Is that kind of is that because it's been rammed down throats for so long that that those two foods or carbs in particular are seen as a negative or a negative light or is it learned or how? Where is it kind well, of? Well, I'll from? tell you. When I was young, I had my own eating disorder. It was a diet binge eating disorder. I would diet during the week and then binge on the weekend, and 
at that time, there was a diet called Atkins. Yeah. It came around again. Well, Atkins was, you know, low, 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 no carb. I mean, even then, and we're talking 50 years ago. So um, it's been around as long as I've known anything about diets, which was, I didn't know about them until actually my early 20s, which is unusual today. Kids kids know about yeah. them at 11. But um, it's, yeah, it's been around. And it's probably we could go into some of the history of eating and find out where that began. Um, there's a puritanical piece to this also, uh, here in America. Anyway, we've got kind of this puritanical belief about food that, you know, you shouldn't enjoy it so much <laughs> and carbs. What do they make? They make cookies and they make cakes and they make all kinds of yummy foods. And there's kind of a sense of you're a better person if you're staunch and you don't have all this, you know, pleasure. Nobody I know feels like that. And I certainly don't, but I, I do know that it's part of our history here. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but we'll see. We're, we're growing like up. Carbs. We're growing up on the potato. <laughs> so oh, uh... sure. My favorite, my, my favorite thing. Well, let me tell you a little story about, habituation and potatoes. I know I'm going off script, but not that I have one. Um, I love French fries. And I remember a time I was had a dinner reservation at this restaurant that had the best French fries ever. And a couple of days before I went to a different restaurant, it sounded like I go out to eat all the time. I really don't, but I do sometimes. And I was ordering my dinner and I still remember it was a turkey burger and it came with French fries. And I remember thinking, hmm, I'm so looking forward to my French fries at this other restaurant in a couple of days. I think I'll have a baked potato. So I asked them if they would substitute it for a baked potato. And they said, no, we're going to charge you $3.50. And I was feeling kind of cheap that night. And I said, fine, just give me the fries. And I had them and they were adequate. They were okay. But I will tell you, when I got to my favorite French fries, they weren't quite as exciting as they would have been if I hadn't had those a couple of days before. That habituation started to take in, you know, take place just within a couple of days of, of not having them. So I don't know. We want, we don't want to make things scarce. I mean, in this case, I was just looking forward to these fabulous fries and I wanted the best satisfying experience with them. So I wanted to wait a couple more days for them, but I had the others because I wasn't going to, wasn't going to be a big deal and they weren't quite as enjoyable on Saturday night. I think, and I think what, what, like what you're trying to say and what is the truth and so what I believe in as a coach is that like you're better off having the foods you enjoy on a regular basis or a daily basis. So like ice cream is my thing. I love ice cream. Yeah, me too. As soon every as we night. finish this, I go for an ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, every night. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it, like you're better off and you'll probably stick to whatever you're trying to do. If you look at every time you try to go on a potential diet, whoever's listening to this, it's normally taking out a food group or something that you enjoy. So before you even start, you're right. making it more difficult for you. It's almost like you're chopping off your legs. Well, right. And, and and it's taking out what you want. And it's also reducing the amount, even if you have can have a little bit of something you like. Yeah, you can have a fingernail full of it, and that's certainly not going to satisfy you. No. So it's it's the item or the quantity of the item that's that's taken away. Absolutely. And one of the things that kind of can be kind of and is a, a massive struggle for an awful lot of people is a thing called the weighing scales. And you <laughs> you uh you phrase it brilliantly in the book as calling it a false idol. Yes. Can you as I think people are going to resonate with this an awful lot? Yes. Um can you explain what you mean by that and how to kind of right. break up with the scales? Like that ex-boyfriend yes. or girlfriend that you don't want to see, you shouldn't yes. see anymore. Absolutely. 
Well, the reason it's a, there's two words there, false and idle. The first piece, false, a scale is not a measure of anything certain. I mean, our bodies have a fluctuation of weight on a regular basis based on so many things, whether it's hormones, whether it's heat, whether it's salt intake. I mean, the, uh, the scale, the number on the scale is not like an absolute, although people take it that way. So they have a thought, I should weigh this number and they get on the scale. Oh, by the way, another reason why the scale goes up is working out and, you know, muscle holds water. And I don't think people realize that. Yeah. So, you know, they start a workout program thinking they're going to lose weight and they get on the scale two weeks later and they've gone up and it's like, ah, this isn't working. No, actually you're building muscle and you're holding water because every pound of muscle holds three pounds of water. So, I mean, there's so many factors that make the number on the scale, nothing that is accurate. Number one, number two, the idol, it's, it's like they're looking to that scale to make them feel good or bad. And so they look at it and if, for some reason, the scale goes down. They're so happy. I mean, they're, you know, they're what quote unquote God that they're looking up to has just given them, you know, a sense that they're good people because they've lost weight. And then of course, the next time it goes up and they feel bad about themselves. So it's a, it's a dangerous and toxic uh, piece of equipment that I encourage my clients to get rid of the scales because they're meaningless. They just, they're an external form of validation. And they're not uh, they're not connected at all to your internal voice of am I eating what I want to be eating? That how does it taste? Is it satisfying? Is it, do I enjoy it more if I'm eating on a regular basis every few hours so that I have comfortable hunger and appetite versus going into a meal without hunger or going into a meal and being ravenous and primal hunger? You know what is my body telling me? How do I feel after I eat this food? The scale is all external. It doesn't measure any of those internal messages. We call it interoceptive awareness, listening to what your body is telling you. The scale is not in your, it's outside of your body. And uh, there's been a really interesting phenomenon that's happened since the pandemic uh, when I'm treating people with eating disorders, and I see everyone now on Zoom, I'm not seeing anybody in person. Uh, there is a scale that has no numbers, where um, it's trans the, the number is transmitted electronically to me, the person buys the scale, and uh, they don't ever see the numbers. And the only reason I even know, need to know them is if I'm working with someone with anorexia whose weight is going down and yeah. it's dangerous. I never weigh any I want anybody to weigh themselves in any other you know situation. So uh, yeah, those numbers are really toxic and breaking up with the scale can be very painful. Uh, I, have a, I have a lovely client I've worked with for a couple of months now who was, I mean, her whole life was connected to how she felt based on what her weight was that morning because she's been up and down and diets all over the place. And since she has let go of the scale, she, she was, it was so great. She said, my mood is better. I'm happier. I feel better. I can do better work in therapy. I'm just in a better place when I'm not looking at the scale and she's reconnecting with what her body's telling her again, in terms of pleasure, satisfaction, feeling good. So um, it's about asking yourself, how do I feel when I get off of that scale? And typically the answer is going to be some days great and some days terrible. And asking yourself how you can find other ways that are more reliable to give you information about yourself than a scale that is all, you know, uh, mixed up and, and wrong. In fact, you know, it's so interesting. There can be two people that weigh the same amount on a scale, but have completely different body composition. 
I that's I that if I look at it, if I look at me when I was at my like at my kind of like most uh when the body composition wasn't where it is now, should I say? I'm not going to use mm-hmm. negative language towards myself, right. but I'm exactly the same weight. Right. So, what does a number mean? It means nothing. It means nothing about health, by the way. Numbers mean nothing about health. the The whole concept of health is uh, has to be broadened to look at something called social determinants of health, meaning do you have access to medical care? Do you have access to food? Do you have access to housing and socialization? And are you experiencing trauma in the world? Are you, you know, a fear of being uh, ridiculed or biased in some way, causing your stress levels to go up and you have high cortisol? Health has nothing to do with your weight, zero. Absolutely zero. Uh, I have known people of all sizes in excellent health. Their metabolic, you know, their their lab work, their metabolic indicators are wonderful. And people in very, let's say, tiny bodies who really are, their health is kind of a disaster. They're not taking care of themselves and their measures are coming back in negative ways or not not healthy ways. That puts a a pin in the health at every size question. (laughs) Well, yeah. Exactly. Health at every size is what can we do for ourselves in so many ways, not just how much are we moving our bodies and what are we eating, but how can we take care of ourselves? As I said in the beginning, this is a intuitive eating is a self-care framework. It's based on 10 principles, which are, by the way, just guideposts. They are not rules. They are just something to help you kind of gauge what's going on. You asked me about a scale of fullness earlier, which I didn't yeah. respond to. I don't believe in those numbers, frankly. I know I'm part of writing this book. I think they're just, if you look at them and kind of with your eyes blurred and you realize that in the middle, it's neutral. And as you, as it gets higher, you get fuller to the top when you're not you know, comfortable or you're very uncomfortable. And at the bottom where you're starved, it doesn't matter exactly what number, just listen to your body and have your body tell you, you know. One of the things that you're kind of talking about with the scales and stuff like that, I'm going to play devil's advocate on this. Okay. Right. Sure. So I know what's going to happen is if say, if you were to say to a client to take away the scales, Mm-hmm. The question that will come back in is, well, how do I know I'm making progress? Well, what is your goal? Is it weight loss? You know, that's the thing. Where progress at in what Area. avenue? Yeah. Yeah. So I go mean, with the weight, we'll go with the weight loss one for argument's sake anyway. Well, see, I have a very strong uh, and deep belief that any focus on weight loss is going to lead to some sort of disaster one way or the other, physiologically, psychologically. So using that as your goal, weight loss is only heading you down uh, you know, a path that's going to make you unhappy. Maybe for a while you think, oh, great, I did this, I lost the weight. But then what happens? 95 to 98% of people who lose weight gain it back. And after a couple of years, two thirds of them gain even more weight back. So what is the point? What if you realign your goals to, I want to feel good. I want to be strong. I want to be, look, I I work out regularly and I have my entire adult life. I'm 77 and I am strong and I have, uh, God, I'm doing our interview standing. I do my session standing and I uh, I move and I eat in ways to help me feel the best I can and to be most productive in my life. I don't care what numbers the scale would say. I don't weigh myself. I haven't in years and years. Um, so if they're holding weight loss as their goal, at some point they're going to feel defeated and unhappy. After it's like a roller coaster, you know. After maybe they're doing whatever they're doing and they're st- seeing the scale go down, and then bam they can't maintain it because if they're eating less, especially if they're moving more, 
then the survival part of the brain is just going to send out every message to slow the body down, slow the <coughs> metabolism, slow the metabolism down. So, you know, we're, we're, our brains, I like to say, you know, we can't fool mother nature. Our brains want to keep us at our genetically predisposed set point weight. So anything we try to do to get outside of that, ultimately, we're going to go back to another term I have, I like to use is homeobalance to the body is where it's supposed to be. So yeah, you can do all kinds of things. I and mean, I've treated people with anorexia for years whose body weight goes so far down, but once they heal, their bodies go back up to where it's meant to be. So that's my answer to that. Let's reframe what our goals are rather than how am I making progress? Am I feeling better every day? Like this client of mine who stopped weighing herself. She, her mood is better. She's happier. She's more in tune with her eating. She's um, more in tune with her body. She's enjoying food. She said, I didn't even know what foods I liked uh, until now. I just ate what I thought I was supposed to eat. I'm enjoying food now. My body feels better. I'm sleeping better. I have better concentration. I may be uh, conflating several clients because I have so many clients who tell me how much better their lives are in so many ways, their sleep, their concentration, their mood, everything improves by being intuitive in their eating. Obviously, I'm a proponent of intuitive eating. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and in relation to that external validator, yeah. that is that is the scales. Uh-huh. I'm not sure what it's like in America in relation okay. to certain clubs that people go to. Are they prevalent over in the States or is that kind of like a more... You mean of- like Weight Watchers or... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, they're all over the place and they're dangerous and toxic and horrible and people get... Do you think applauded. it comes from there though? I'm sorry, what? Do you think that whole external validator thing comes from those kind of clubs or is it kind of coming from parents and all that kind of stuff? Well, I think those those places are perpetuating it. I don't think comes I don't think they originated it. I think it starts it often starts as I mentioned earlier from the pediatrician who gets uh is not really informed about nutrition or anything. They're just, you know, they're doctors and they're seeing Waco up and they're so caught up in this quote unquote obesity epidemic that they make a comment and now the child's food is being monitored and the child's feeling deprived and then you know things change because they're going after what they can't have that, that whole thing. So I think it can start with a doctor. I think it can start with a grandparent. I have a, I have a young uh, 16 year old I'm working with whose grandmother was so toxic to her who said to her, Oh, you can't even see beyond, (laughs) excuse me. You can't even see beyond your belly. And this child went into severe eating disorder, starving and purging. And because she felt so bad about herself because her grandmother made this comment about her. And I've had, a, I've had that story a lot of times where grandparents make a comment. Uh, so the home, the, the, the medical community, social media, let me say this, Shane, it has its blessings and it is also very dangerous. You have to be very careful, especially if you have young children to look at the feet, you know, what, who are they following? Whom are they following? I should say who, what, what is being fed to them in these, um, you know, photoshopped and altered, digitally altered images that they're seeing that then they think there's something wrong with them because they don't look like that. Social media can be beneficial if people follow body positive, uh, you know, intuitive eating health at every size uh, feeds. Yeah, I think I, I don't think I'd be I'd like to be growing up in this era that we're currently in. I think it's a little bit too. It's extreme. 
Yeah, it's pretty sad. Yeah, it's pretty sad. I mean, kids, you know, kids don't get to just be free and go play outside and do what they want to do. They're often, well, maybe in Ireland when it's too hot or too cold, you can't. But um, you know, they're they're just so attached to these phones that they're getting at very young ages and just keep, you know, being directed by what they're being shown. Yeah, like I was even over with my um, my mate is three three boys under six, and I was over in the house, and like the three lads have like um, devices. They're not they're like the kids' versions of like iPads and stuff like that, but they're they're quiet, they're silent because they're on them. Yeah. But you do worry so- for them when, like, I understand from a par- from a parent point of view for my mate and his wife is like well, yeah. it keeps the kids occupied if they're quiet. <laughs> It's a quieter house, but at the same time, you're kind of in the back of your head. You're like, you know how those devices work. You know how that could be impacting them for future stuff going yeah. on. It's kind of like, it's, and of course, what, yeah, we all need our kids to be quiet sometimes, but why have children if you're not going to just sit there, you know, do stuff with them? <laughs> I yeah. mean, so, I am not, a, I'm not judging that. And I mean, when I was bringing my son up, there wasn't any of this. So, you know, I had to be more involved as a parent, but um and i again i'm not judging i mean there are times when you just need to go away go watch this and <laughs> leave me alone but um yeah it's fine in the middle ground i think it's it's like with everything i think the middle ground has been lost somewhere along the line of most exactly. things that we're doing and whether it be kind of like nutrition whether it be politics whether it be finance whether it be global warming yes. somewhere along the line the middle ground is completely from completely and utterly blurred. Um, I know you have to go off on a consultation yeah. now. So I, where can people find out about yourself? Where can people buy your book? And where can people potentially work sure. with you as well? Okay. So um, my book is available any place that books are sold. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I don't know what you have available in Ireland. Do you We have, have Amazon. We'd have like, the, we'd have, we don't have Barnes & Noble, I don't think, but we have like, say, W.A. Smith and Easton's and all that kind of stuff. That yeah, and them. you can go and request. If they don't have it, they'll order it and you can get it that way. But I, I hate to keep promoting Amazon because it's such a big book depository. Yeah, right. Um but see if some of your local bookstores will get it for you. So, but Amazon definitely will have all of the books. There's the, I mentioned my intuitive eating workbook for teens. There's the intuitive eating workbook that can go along with the intuitive eating quote unquote Bible. There's uh, I wrote also an intuitive eating journal, which gives lots of pages for exploration and reflection. And then there's a, a, a deck of cards. It's kind of like a tarot deck. Pull a deck card anywhere and there will be the piece that you need to be looking at it with intuitive eating. It's not the way to learn intuitive eating necessarily because it's very, you know, brief, but it's fun. So those are all the things that can be bought. And then I um, I am on Instagram. I have to say that I am not very technologically great, but I do repost wonderful things every day with credit to the people who wrote, wrote them you know, to begin with. And I, I, I'm not on, I'm not on Facebook, but I never go to Facebook, but Instagram is, you know, I think fun. And there's, you can find me at Elise Resch and my email address is Elise Resch at gmail.com. It's easy. Um, E-L-Y-S-E-R-E-S-C-H at gmail.com. So if anybody, you know, has a question or something and <laughs> if I get flooded with 500 questions, it'll be a while <laughs> before I get back to you, but I do make a commitment to try to respond to all. You know, amazing. I get. 
Thank and, you so oh, much. One last thing. Web, I'm sorry. Websites. Web, websites. My website is eliseresch.com, which is in the at the moment being modernized. It will be up. I mean, it's up, but it's going to look a little different shortly. And then there's the intuitiveeating.org website. Amazing. So I'll put all those links into the bottom so everyone can uh, click on those and I'll do the brief intro and stuff like that at the beginning. Uh, yeah. But thank you so much for coming on. And uh, like if anyone's looking for that book, I would highly recommend if you're a coach, I'd highly recommend it. And if you're looking to learn and listen to understand how your body ticks for you, I would highly recommend to listen to it. The stuff about the satisfaction factor is, is, oh, wow. is amazing. So, so uh, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Wow, what an episode. I cannot thank Alicia enough for coming on and sharing the words of wisdom. And it's interesting that some of the thoughts and concepts she's had, she's kind of changed and altered her thoughts on them and she's using the tools herself when she's out for those meals and stuff. So if you guys have enjoyed this episode at all, please do tag us up on your story. I would highly recommend to go out and get the book Intuitive Eating if you're a coach or nutritionist or dietitian, whatever it may be, or if you just want to learn what that is because it is one of those words that's thrown around an awful lot. I'm not sure if many people are aware what it actually means and what it entails so i would highly recommend to go over and get it uh, so the link is in the bio if people are looking to sign up for the female fat loss program that is starting up on this friday the link is in the bio as well so guys thank you so much for listening to the episode